Pronounce your name correctly for me. Fatosh Ustek. And you're from Turkey, but you're currently in London. So, like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Yes, I I have a dual nationality actually. After living in the UK for many years, I have also become British. It was actually quite interesting in the sense that I became British two days after the Brexit vote. So, you know, definitely like 2016. Is that good or is that bad? I wish I could have voted. I mean, not that I would change the result, imagine, with one vote, but I wish I was too close to be able to vote in the country that I was residing. But as you said, I'm from Turkey. I was I was born there and I grew up there. I had my education there. And then afterwards, I moved out, traveled and lived in different countries. And I think it's more like UK chose me rather than me choosing UK. But then I settled here and now I'm British too. All right. But your background now, your uh, childhood, how did you even get into curating? Because it's not like, it's not something, there's no classes in general education. Like there's no, how do you get to curating? Were like, were you introduced to arts as a very young age from your family, from school? How did you get that sort of bug? Mm-hmm. The thing is, the word curator was a foreign word in Turkey in the 90s. And so it didn't even exist as a kind of, a, you know, a vocation or a, or, a, or a job role that you would want. And I mean, in many countries, I guess it's the same, but also like many that that's like countries that are developing countries, you know, your parents want you to, and your grandparents want you to become a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer. That is some kind of a very concrete job with a concrete title and also, you know, a regular income. And then I introduced the idea of curating to my family. They were slightly curious what it really meant. And for me, I didn't even know what it meant even after I was curious and interested in it and my interest in curating started in the late 90s early 2000s and before that you know like uh, also in my close family we don't have many people who are in the arts so that was also a kind of a different vocation as well as I said you know engineering is more has a bigger or higher rank than someone who works in the arts and it was in my early college years that I was interested in. I mean, like I have to say, Istanbul Biennial was really an institution for me to kind of like engage with contemporary art and learn from its editions. And because at the time we didn't have, you know, like a museum of modern art in Istanbul, in Turkey. I mean, like at the time I was living in Istanbul. And we didn't have many other institutions that disseminated art except galleries that were backed by commercial banks. And of course, their programming and their responsibility of contributing to the culture was at a different level than an international arts biennial. In a nutshell, it wasn't something that I knew I was going to be. It was almost like I happened to be a curator and writer as well. All right, but give me a little like step by step. Like, did you start off as like working at a coffee shop and then working <laughs> some? Like, how did you sort of get to you know? Because like, I'm thinking if I'm a a young kid and uh, somehow I'm thinking like curating is my thing that I want to be doing. Like, w- are there any sort of like 
standard sort of pos job positions to try to attain to sort of get yourself into that direction? I did many jobs, actually. So I worked for Istanbul Cultural Foundation and I've worked for all their festivals, you know, theater, music, electronic music festival, film festival. I was interested in film. Also, I have a degree in film as well. So I was, uh, you know, I was an assistant working with members of press or taking people around as well as welcoming musicians or singers to the festival, taking care of them, making sure that they find their hotel and making sure that they, you know, like turn up to their concert. All these things are, were very important for me to be part of that cultural hotspot, I'd say. Well, I used to do things like I used to be a roadie. I used to do the lights and the sound for rock and roll bands on tour. So like That's I know all about the, it was a great long party. I only remember maybe one third of it, but it was a good time. So yeah. That is so nice because a friend of mine actually I think it was again like early two thousands, Manu Chao, when he was like, you know, really high up and hitting all the um, all the best of the lists. He came to Istanbul for a concert and then my friend was assisting him and his band. They got on so well that she actually toured with them throughout whole Europe afterwards. And we were all envying. I mean, like she kind of, I think, paused her studies at the time because we were all in college. You know, this was a kind of an alternative income, very minimal, but at the same time, very pleasurable way of you know, generating income for yourself and supporting yourself while really being part of a a very exciting conversation and slightly draining too. You know, it you know, it's not like it doesn't have regular working hours. It's not like, okay, five o'clock, you go home. It's like, oh, it's problem solving and it's five o'clock time to go to work is what it was <laughs> yeah. for me. Like, I mean, we would work from five PM till four AM. But I mean I was in my schooling when I did it as well. Actually, I was at the Corcoran in DC getting my BFA and I scheduled all my classes on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So then I toured Thursday through Sunday and then came back and did classes Monday through when through Wednesday. So it was marvelous. That is great. It was that great, is great fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Long time ago, million miles away. So yeah, yeah, mine too. But it feels close too somehow. I still remember myself in those situations. You know, like where you're troubleshooting or you have to find something so last minute, or the cables don't match. You know, <laughs> all these things. Oh, I remember them fondly. It's just, I mean, it, for me, it was it was also like when I was still doing drugs and I quit doing drugs, um, mm -hmm. you know, hardcore drugs and all that jazz. But you know, some 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 drugs are still fine. But but like hardcore drugs, quit doing those. Back, you know, and so like that sort of is a, literally a, a different lifetime for me. So that's farther away for me. I, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not doing heroin and cocaine anymore. Haven't done it in twenty years but it was a very fond time in my life. Yeah, but I think it was also with the culture as well. I don't know, like with the younger generation, they don't have that culture. I really feel it was also kind of like the epitome of the time. I used to smoke, for instance, and because everybody, all my friends smoked, it, was, it wasn't like, oh, I want to smoke. Exactly. It was more, you know, it was part of it. Like you work until late, you're waiting for the band to come out and then you would have a, you know, cigarette break because it was a way of like giving yourself a bit of a private space. I think it's really like they're like each generation, I think, has their own specific cultures. Like, 
you know, today we are talking about like Gen Z, the fact that they don't drink, the fact that they're like, you know, so conscious of like zero waste or yeah exactly you know like for me going out is like having lots of drinks and dancing of course i can dance without drinking but it, it's always nice to kind of have a combination of both oh uh, yeah you always think you're a better dancer when drinking i totally get it yeah i mean like I okay i believe you i i've never seen you dance but yeah like i started smoking when i was in college and i with photography, one of the things was in the dark, wet dark room that we would have to leave our prints to be washed for like a half an hour before we could really sort of take them out and look at them and stuff. And so I would have to sit there for long stretches of waiting for chemistry to resolve itself. And my friends would go out for cigarettes and lo and behold, I ended up partaking and there you go. That's how I started it. My interest in art actually really was sparked off uh, when I started at the photography arts club in our college and um, in our university. And I really have almost like Picasso's blue period. I have a dark period because I just lived in the dark room. People were really curious who I was because I would just go in there, you know, and I loved the process of developing images. It, it has some kind of a, I don't know, inherent magic in, in the whole thing. And all the, like the chemical smell, everything on you smells like terribly, your head never goes out of it. But at the same time, you are in there, part of that kind of creative process that was so very special. I love the smell of a dark room. I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. <laughs> Everybody's got you're their thing. 45. <laughs> I, I was just I just recorded another podcast with a photographer and he was saying how like there's a cologne now that smells like developer <laughs> no like way. For, for photographers to smell like a dark room. <laughs> like I'm not sure I'd want to do that, but I enjoy the smell in a dark room. I'm not sure I'd enjoy the smell out of a dark room, but nonetheless. <laughs> um Okay, one thing, we've had some previous conversations prior to this recording, so like one thing that struck me that I sort of wanted to know about is curators, I feel like, have individual sort of styles, whether it's styles of thing, of subject matters they're interested in or whether it's sort of styles or techniques of coming to their ideas. Um, so like, how would you define both sort of like the subject matters you're interested in, but also sort of the, the way in which you manifest an idea? Absolutely. I mean, as we all have mentioned before, I'm very much interested in concept-driven curatorial approach. You know, there are many different approaches. Like you can be, you know, in the in the curatorial canon, you can be specialized in a certain period or in a certain movement, like Impressionist painting or 70s modernity in South America. And that specialisms are also very interesting exactly you know like it might be very niche but also at the same time it brings a different kind of like pack of knowledge with it and my approach is more about you know it's also it's it's, it's a different way it's like I'm very much interested in concepts and that's also a bit like you know concepts that are backed by philosophy as well as like sociology or theories that are inherent in the world or in our you know like what you come across with and also like what you kind of connect with one having one experience to another and I'm very much interested in open concepts and then 
engaging artists in a conversation and I work a lot with commissioning a new work I, I, there is like kind of a, a very interesting excitement to that risk of like making a you know like making a new thing happen or supporting a new work happen so in that sense I wouldn't be I wouldn't you know like entitle myself as periodic curator neither you know there's another curating methodology that is called essays curating where it's all about like you know treating the exhibition as a text and also it's almost like writing an essay or what is you know like a, what is like a novel for fiction you choreograph the exhibition and that choreography I think really necessitates pre-existing works instead of like new commissions to really tightly put together the exhibition of what you're trying to say and I mean you know like for me this kind of like concept driven approach into curating enables an openness yes you know every exhibition is a recontextualization of an artwork so an artwork has a different context when it is in the studio in different context it gains another layer of meaning and another layer of uh, contextualization so i think it's about like with the responsibility of the form and the content and the context in which you're introducing the artwork it's really about like how do you create openness so that there could be multiple readings and multiple experiences of the exhibition by the audiences as well as by you know like the artists and and the practitioners themselves Okay, so what I'm hearing is that you, as a, if it, like let's say if it were if it were up to you, so budgets and and space, anything is your choice, and no nobody gives you any constraints on that. You would choose to do commissioned uh, exhibitions versus uh, putting together an exhibition of existing works. I definitely have a, a tendency. I mean, like maybe it could be like ninety percent new commissions and then ten percent existing works because it's also about you know like. It's a bit like music, you know, you need some notes that are almost like uh, reference points, not that they become the cluster points where they are the heaviest, most important works in the exhibition, but reference points where you can have different relationships happening or when you're referring to the exhibition, there is a visual representation of it, especially when you're, you know, because when you're discussing and introducing the exhibition to a wider group of recipients, you do need some, how can I say, reference points. That could be also like the works, the pre previous works of the artists that are part of the exhibition. In short, a majority would be commissions. That would be my ideal project in whatever scale. Okay, the reason why I ask though is because it, what that sounds like to me is, is as a curator, you seem to be interested in sort of the the oeuvre of an artist, the style, the the, the concepts, the, the things they're engaging with, the, either be it materials or, or or ideas, and then you want to see what they could do new if you put them in certain limitations or give them certain constraints, whether it be time or budget or whatever. And that's an interesting thing because that, to me, from my background, that's the that's very foreign to me. I've never, I've almost never done commissions. I've done like three in my entire life. I hated every oh. one of them, but, 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 but they were private commissions. So like basically, you know, more or less like people said, like take a portrait of my dog, 
that's not what happened. That's not what happened. But basically, that's how it felt to me. So (laughs) the idea of your sort of doing it through the art, through the, the curatorial process that you get to commission them to make work sounds more like you're building relationships with these people. And so like, you like to work with them, you like to build something with them, you like to create something new with them as a as a collaborative process versus just going, I love this piece, can I hang it on this wall? And that to me sounds sort of a ve- like a very contemporary idea for curators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? No, I think that- it's, it's, it's a very interesting way of seeing it, to be honest. Like, uh, definitely it has a collaborative ethos, but I haven't really articulated that way. For me, you know, what is very important is the practice of the artist. I don't necessarily focus on one work and through that work define the artist and the artistic practice, but I'm very much interested in the pool of the artworks. And I mean, like, as you are an artist yourself, perhaps you would say, you would, you would attest to it, you know, not every work you do is the masterpiece or the most defining work of your practice. But I, think I resent that. that. No, no. Everything I make is a masterpiece. I have no okay. idea. So. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. Uh, except you. There are many artists. <laughs> that totally were, uh... kidding. Totally kidding. Yes. <laughs> but it's about, you know, like really knowing, how can I say, engaging with all the works of art that the artist has produced to also build a sense of the nature of their practice instead of defining what their practice is. But like really almost it's about... It's a very thin line between definition and having a sense of something because then that having a sense of is much more open because then you would not, when you're commissioning, ask the artist to do an artwork that is a bit like, you know, your your picture of a dog uh, example, a bit like that work and a bit less like the other work. It's really about you know, engaging with the language, the logic of that artist thinking, and then supporting them when thinking it on a, for a new context, responding to a new idea, supporting them through the foundations of their practice, if I could make it clear. So in that sense, that is really a relationship as well. You know, it's like, it's very unrelated, but I like this quote, you know, like loving someone is knowing the song in their heart and singing to them when they are forgotten. And in a way, I, I feel my work with the artists are the same. It's not, a, you know, like in a way, a romantic love relationship, but it's actually really engaging with the, the, the song that, that they have in the heart of their practice and supporting them to, you know, like keep playing that song or keep growing that song, keep writing that song. Because also, like, I think every artwork adds to your practice as well, as well as every artwork, I would really speculate, adds to the definition of art. There isn't a fixed definition of art. But, you know, it's, of course, like, what gets visible, what gets added to the historical canon is a totally different thing. But I really think, you know, like, every action is part of a bigger texture. I'm not going to entertain the conversation of like defining art. That's just going to be problematic no matter what I say, because I'm sure I'll stick my foot in my mouth. So, um, but okay. When you commission works, it's like, I, in my history, like there are places that I love, like there's this place called Crown Point Press in San Francisco. And what they do is they're a printmaking facility 
but what they do is they choose artists who have never worked in printmaking to come and do a residencies there and work in a new medium basically so and so so they they choose painters and sculptors and other people who have never done printmaking to do it so i guess the question would be like when you're doing your curatorial commissioning do mm -hmm. you look at what they do and just say okay i want you to do this except bigger or i want you to do this except sort of more, more towards this concept um or do you a, a, sort of push them a little bit more to so that maybe go outside their comfort zone in a way yes but also no at the same time so what happens is i don't know it's about also like the passion and excitement I am very like excited and passionate about the conversation, but also about art. So when we are having a conversation with the artists and when they're presenting their idea for a new work, I get more excited and my excitement excites them. And then, then the project kind of like almost grows on a much more of a kind of organic way. And I can say that, you know, looking back, I work with some artists that they have done to date of, of not now, but like until we worked together, their biggest, largest scale work was also the work that we've, you know, like I've curated or we worked together. And that is like almost like a natural kind of uh, evolution of that conversation. I mean, like I can perhaps like give a reference to Fig2, which is this uh, 50 exhibitions in 50 weeks that I curated in 2015 or through, throughout 2015. One thing I found out that not many people know how many weeks are there in a year, because when they heard 50 weeks, they would say half a year, oh, maybe it's more than a year and a half. And I was like, 52, oh, 52 weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, okay. Okay, because yeah. Christmas, you, you can't have an exhibition on Christmas. Nobody will come. You know, so that's why it was 50 weeks. That's so, what, it, what it's not the opposite of secular. What is that, like, so religious? Why Why only Christmas? Why not Hanukkah? Why not other, like... Yeah, because why? it was taking place in the UK, and it's a... Christian society, it's I guess. Christian it. society. Yeah. And, I mean, the formula of 50 exhibitions in 50 weeks was not my unique idea. It was actually originally conceptualized by Mark Francis, who is a curator and currently a director at Gagosian? He did that project in the year 2000 on a in a like a Georgian house in the middle of Soho. Well, it's also much catchier. Fifty and fifty is much catchier than fifty-two and fifty-two. It just doesn't roll off the tongue quite as nicely. That is true. That is true. There are those numbers, no? Like, yeah, seven days in the art world. <laughs> 50 exhibitions in 50 weeks yeah sure. yeah it's a, it's a much nicer number i agree with you i like 50 as a number it's kind of like has been haunting me my life actually you know like i did many many things that was with 50. anyway going back to fig 2 i was 15 years after fig 1 i was given a carte blanche to do a program throughout a whole year and ICA gave us the studio that we could operate from. And there was also a budget. Hmm. ICA is? In London, Institute of Contemporary Art. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm not in London and most of the listeners are probably not in London. So I'm just, you know, give me the full name. That's all. Of course. Yeah. ICA, there are many ICAs around the world. This one is the one in London. 
there's an international contemporary art place in New York, I think, called ICA. So, like, yeah, ICA is a, a very common. Yeah, there's ICA Boston. There are many ICAs, definitely. So you're super right. I mean, this ICA was founded in, like, 1946 by artists. So it's also a very interesting constellation for an institution as well. Anyway, they gave me the space and the budget, and I also had incredible team. We were a very small team, only like three others, Eve, Irene, and Jesse. What was important for me was to pass that carte blanche to the artists as well. So I think I like I like teasing, and I think I really like being playful and you know a bit more you know when you said like pushing boundaries I like pushing boundaries or I like alternative perspectives not for the sake of it or I don't do that with a big force but it's more in in the way of being or in the way of communicating or doing things so what I then would go and tell the artists that okay, what would you like to do? What you have always dreamed of and never done. If you had a space, if you had a budget, what is your innermost desire? Let's do that. And of course, that offer excites by its nature because then you were like, okay, I can do anything. But we ended up really, you know, it was almost like, a blessing and a curse in its own right because of course when the desires go high up you want to even go higher and then and then the workload and the necessity necessitated funding becomes beyond what you have as a budget but that was never an obstacle for me I fundraised while we were curating and going through almost like I think one third of additional budget I fundraised throughout that year for the each specific project because some of them really needed bigger budgets and what we had was very minuscule. Anyway, long story short, photographers did performances, you know, video artists did transform the space into a heavy metal rock band concert, and then after it became a casting studio for their TV online web series so it was also about like you know introducing that playfulness to them as well because it was a week you know in a way a week is very short but it can be also very long it can be you know something that you do that really energizes you meanwhile you're building your masterpiece or something that could be you know like the start of your masterpiece that you test out or it is the masterpiece that's just there. Okay. You're t you're telling me sort of the greatest hits of all these things. What I'm also very interested in, because you brought it up about like failures on my part, saying mm -hmm. that I am not masterful. It's fine. That have any of these collaborations ever <laughs> failed? Have anybody you know on anybody's side? I mean, I'm not looking for blame and you don't have to say names, but I mean, mm -hmm. have there ever been circumstances where the thing didn't work for whatever reason? The thing is, I don't see any failure, but looking back, I would, you know, lay out the exhibition differently. With some works, I would have shown other works of the artist, etc. So like looking back, I, I feel the exhibitions could be richer because there was one exhibition, I can't even give a name, like Young in Hong, and he, she was on week six. And uh, she wanted to do a theater performance, like a contemporary dance theater performance 
and we concentrated so much on the production because it was a big production there were five performers there were two musicians one was a korean shaman drumming the other was a violinist and it was an incredible piece and we also had a video crew that filmed the whole performance on the opening night and then we didn't sleep that night until early hours in the morning we edited the video footage with the artist to install as a video installation in the exhibition space on Tuesday morning to open at 10 a.m. on Tuesday. I mean, like, we did those things several times, by the way. We did also with Ben Judd, you know, like the next day, the performance became a three-channel video installation in the space, you know, overnight editing again. That was not the problem. I think it was more like when you, and I think that is very interesting in, in curating. And I would also maybe ask you what you think about art, uh, you know, being an artist and production. It's really about always keeping the big picture when you channel your energies to one side, because that is the most complicated part that actually demands much more energy, then you can really go astray and slightly lose balance. And I would really say Youngin's exhibition actually could have been much stronger if we had given ourselves the space to also give it a push, think it much more thoroughly than only doing the performance. But it was also the first performance we've done, the first time we used the ICA theatre, it's like a big space, etc., etc. I would say maybe those were like the hiccups in, in that programming. Failure-wise, like sometimes it's also about what I've really learned, you know, is that planning is very important and really like thinking and reassessing, creating feedback loops in what you do is very important because things happen. Like we were commissioning this mural for Art Nights that I curated in 2017 across East London. We commissioned this wall mural with uh, City of London Corporation. It's by a Turkish artist. She actually came on a residency to London. She worked with residents of one of the two. There's only two council estates that City of London Corporation looks after. And we were really in like Tower Hamlet, City of London, Hackney areas. So it's almost like the council estate is almost like kind of squeezed between the gherkin or all these, you know, big skyscrapers of the city. And it's on the verge of like the, you know, traditional or more like the kind of 19th century East London and the 21st century East London. And we worked with the residents and then we mapped their dreams and desires or how they related to their city onto a banner. And then it was becoming a mural. And the festival was one night only festival. So you can't delay, you know, you can't actually not install the work and expect people to come the next day because something didn't go wrong. Everything has to happen. So, you know, we planned in advance. So we actually had this crew who was going to paint the wall. And on the day that they started painting the wall, for some reason, BT installed two giant foam cabinets on both sides of the wall and dug up the whole pedestrian area so the painters couldn't even access it and that was again you know the permission was given by the council as well so that was you know and then of course two days later was the festival and we had a press launch etc it was it was quite interesting to kind of like do that 
on site or on the spot troubleshooting. I definitely went on from, uh, uh, you know, freedom of commissioning to troubles of uh, what can happen when you're commissioning new work. But yeah, not not at all. I mean, it's generally artistic practice in general, like the best laid plans. Like it, it, I always say, like I had this sort of jest with my wife about this is where I say um, I like a certain amount of consistency in order to allow for a certain amount of spontaneity. So like, you know, you have to have a certain amount of things that are planned and organized and set in order to be able to be free to allow for things to go wrong and that you can easily react to them because you're not worried about those things that you've already planned. Like the planned things are done. Don't have to worry about those anymore. But there's then there's a certain amount of openness and spontaneity of things that can occur that you could never have foreseen that might be a problem, but but also might be a blessing in disguise kind of thing. So like having that blend is a sort of a necessary part of the creative endeavor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So well put. It's really about that balance of serendipity and knowing and not necessarily over controlling and not necessarily being, you know, cool about it. Control what you can and allow what you can't to be what, you know, have, I mean, have a you know uh, there's also the like the old um, what is it um plan for the best or no hope for the best plan for the worst yeah that's true that's true i'm a bit on the optimistic side always you know i don't like thinking about the worst uh, that much but it's very true i think that's the wisest way of approaching planning i planned a festival one time and like we got all the way up until like the night before the festival and we realized that nobody had thought about trash cans <laughs> i mean just <laughs> stupid like because we were so obsessed with like oh the performance this the lighting that the, the 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 permissions here the county whatever blah blah and we forgot about trash cans yeah yeah but oh, yeah on the other side you know like for instance i mean like i'm a much m more at ease with it but especially in the beginning you know curating in the uk was very much defined by health and safety regulations. You know, for instance, I did this commission with Dohusu. It's also like his largest commission in the UK, which is like his uh, childhood home, a one-to-one -one replica of, of a traditional Korean house landed on a pedestrian bridge in the middle of the city of London, like next to Liverpool Street Station. I mean, it took us two years to actually make that work happen. We were initially commissioning that work for 2017 Art Night Festival, which took place in July. We unveiled the work in September 2018. And the reason is not, you know, like the, or the, the production, but it was more the kind of like bureaucracy, but the permissions. But I remember we were working also with experts and that's, that's very important, you know, like an expert on front of house, an expert on like security uh, or, you know, trash cans wouldn't have been forgotten, I'm sure, because you need those people. But also at the same time, sometimes the challenge that they put forward uh, does feel slightly out of context but you still need to comply to them. So one of the things were told us was that, you know, like if we will build this house, what if a homeless person moves in? And so we had to kind of close the house, but then it was a fire escape. So you couldn't really close the house. Then we had to make it bomb proof so that if someone puts a bomb in there, it doesn't explode. 
and or we actually had to close it to any other pedestrian access because if somebody goes up with a giant stone in their hand and throws it onto the cars that is our responsibility yeah liability is a huge issue like i mean i i had a conversation with a sculptor who does uh ex outdoor sculptures and he's they like he carries a huge insurance policy on all of his sculptures because you know it's just if somebody just for some reason starts to climb on it and falls so it's not even like it breaks and it falls but if some dumb person just climbs on it they fall they get hurt they could sue you and it, it's just ridiculous the litigious society that we live in but also the ridiculous the stupid people that do dumb things like that so no that is true that is true but sometimes like where is the balance you know like uh, also like about that's also like the culture of relating to art you know for instance we were also when i was in liverpool we were really trying to understand how to get a permission for a bronze sculpture that will be erected if how do we communicate the fact that people shouldn't run to it and and hurt themselves i'm not sure why people would think they should run into a bronze sculpture but you know that you know sure i mean i as a kid i used to climb on sculptures and i would get hurt and my parents didn't sue anybody over it it was my own damn fault i climbed on the thing like it, it, anyways i i'm just not keen on the whole, whole fact that like artists end up having to be responsible to pay for and and whatever like coordinate insurance because of stupid people like that's just a problem i have yeah, I think it's about like, how can we really change that in the society that it is really like you wouldn't run to a tree and hurt yourself. And then how can I say, because it's all about habits. No, it's about habits. And it's about also like that social imaginary, what you feel entitled to do and what you feel that it's not, you know, like right to do. How can we really communicate that about public art? Because that's going to be, you know, especially in the near future, the most important art form happening in our cities. I do not feel entitled to run and smash myself up against a bronze sculpture. I, 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 maybe it's just me, the way I was raised, I don't know, but like, I don't feel any entitlement to need to do that. Yeah, but I think it would be great not to also be able to justify it as well, that people wouldn't feel entitled to do that too. I really respect the fact that you don't. It's great. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of touching art. Like I going into art museums is very painful for me because I always want to touch it. And and I yeah, from a young age, my parents always told me when I go into like galleries or museums that I put my hands in my pocket so that I don't accidentally touch a, a thing because I have a habit of touching things i like the tactile feel of stuff <laughs> i have a friend they have a three-year-old so they said that artworks are hot so he runs to them and then he stops because it's hot i mean like i was like okay let's see what happens when he grows up if he will really like you or hate you for doing that boy i tell you the stuff we scar our kids with by telling them things like that you know like come on, like boy that yeah that, that kid's gonna have a problem later in life i think like they're going to think that artwork is dangerous in some way. Yeah, it's not not healthy. You mentioned something about like sort of the idea of like concepts and techniques and things like this. Like 
it made me think about my own work. Like oftentimes in my own work, I will have two sets of work that I'll be working on simultaneously. One that's very, very technique heavy, material, aesthetics kind of stuff. And then one that's very emotional and expressive and, and, and in sort of a yeah, emotional, expressive, I don't know how else to put it. So the, the question I have for you is, is like when you're a curator and you're looking at work, are you sort of more engaged with really great ideas that might not be fulfilled technically with some great skill? Or are you looking for incredible craftsmen and skilled uh, creators that maybe their ideas could use a little bit more work? It's a very interesting question, actually, because for me, I think like the craftsmanship and ingenuity is sometimes manifested in the technique and sometimes manifested in the idea and the concept of the work. So I initially am interested in the artwork and its strengths. And, you know, like it's maybe important to define what that strength is, but it's about that the work itself can stand on itself. It doesn't need an additional contextual explanation. Like if we go back to, you know, John Berger, you know, like the image and the text added to the image changes the image. So I would be interested in looking at the image. And then, of course, I would like to read the text because then it would add a different reading to the whole experience because the text and image provide the experience together. Yes. Not always. I have I do portfolio reviews, and and uh-huh. there are many times where I have seen some what I would think is very strong work, where I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful, and then I read the text, and the text is about something completely different, or it's just a bunch of gobbledygook, or it's you know Freudian and, and Latin phrases or other kind of crap that makes it sound more pompous and arrogant than it was when it was really beautiful and visceral and emotive when I was like engaging with the work and then the text whether it be a title or an artist statement if done wrong or poorly can ruin an appreciation for a piece of art of course on the opposite side it can elevate and make it even better but that's a really tough balance that these days we as artists we not only have to be able to produce beautiful things whatever performances objects it doesn't matter and title them in some eloquent manner that enhances the appreciation and write an artist statement that then you know brings even more to it which we're not writers generally like that's why we're artists so like what do we do with that no absolutely absolutely and the thing is maybe that is also like an emphasis that have been brought to artists a lot recently is that everybody's expected to talk about their artwork in the same strength and the manner in which their work is but it doesn't have to be the case yeah there are some very eloquent artists that can not only talk about their practices but other practices in very beautiful and very kind of expensive manner expensive ways but there are artists that actually you know they also accept themselves that they would rather not talk about their artwork you know like or sometimes it it has been a political position like stanley brown case or it, it is also like for instance tino segal doesn't do interviews or show himself because he wants the works to kind of like talk about itself etc i totally agree with you you know like it's really about also a way of communicating and you know again like going back to trends and fashions 
I don't know if that fashion will prevail, but there has been a really kind of like condensed time. I would almost like market between 90s and I mean, like it's still kind of like rippling off, but like 90s and 2010s where we wanted to complicate everything. And I think it also is kind of like coincides with the internationalism of the art world, the, you know, like introduction of biennials and festivals where there was a transnational approach into curating, into artworks, into exhibition making that also I think got slightly conflicted with like heavy terminology that needs to be used. I mean like uh, or there are some catalog essays that you even can't read because you need an additional like annotation of what the writer is trying to say in the text. I think we are kind of slightly trying to come out of it because we have understood that that is very self-reflexive way of talking among each other but also at the same time it kind of creates borders and boundaries of excess and it doesn't I'm not saying like accessibility to masses you know we still I think have to acknowledge the fact that the art audience is still a very small part of the whole world it's not football and um yeah Okay, wait, I, I totally am going to disagree with that because I don't care about football. So, like, I don't think football is all that great. But, yeah, the, I mean, the art world in and of itself is a niche thing, whatever, you know, within the, the industry, within the world. But I mean, we get that. But, you know, okay, so, like, what are you going to do with it? Like, I'm, like, for instance, here, I, you know, I'll make this, so I'll turn this on myself. I sent you some of my work, and I, did I include that, that, statement that uh, that uh, was written about the work too uh no only images okay there i tried to write a statement uh about my work now see the hard part is this like i'm still in the middle of creating this work so i'm i don't have the time and the the, the distance to be able to reflect back on it in order to be able to eloquently go oh oh that time period in my life was about this and that and this you know whatever I had an outside curator come and he came in, an independent curator. He came in and looked and he wrote this beautiful thing about it that like I could never have written. And so the question is like, is that legitimate? Like, can, can I use what he wrote as my artist statement? Because I could never write what he, it was really, really quite lovely. And he saw things in the work that like, I hadn't connected the dots yet and things like mm -hmm. this, because again, like I didn't have the time and distance. So my question sort of is this is like, do artists have to be the ones that do things like titles, artist statements, etc.? Or is it legitimate to have curators or even gallerists or whoever, you know, some some sort of a, you know, outside person who's not the practitioner create the text for the artist? I think, you know, it's really the question of agency here. I would say you could definitely use that text that curator has written for you as part of your artist statement. But I would also, you know, make sure that to credit that person. But with titles, it's different because titles are very closely related to the artwork. It's almost like the, how can I say, the cover of a book that I, I think would I would really question the agency and also passing that agency. What if you have chosen to find the title with someone else and a couple of years later, you actually have a different feeling about the work. So I think it's about like your relationship with the work as well, like how close you want to be and how open and interpretable you would like the work to be. 
I'm horrible with titling work. Like I, I either I come up with some incredibly pompous like Latin phrase or some bullshit like that, or, or some incredibly esoteric thing. Like I once opened up a a nonprofit organization that I called Tabula Rasa. Like I mean, that's you know, right. It, it's a great name for people who understand what Tabula Rasa means, but the majority of society doesn't know what that means. So I had to spend yeah, then the next ten learn. years. Well, but I had to spend the next ten years explaining what Tabula Rasa meant instead of just like just saying blank slate would have been much easier. So you know, coming up with titles, like for God's sakes, even the title of this podcast, The Wise Fool, that tells nothing about what the subject of this podcast is. Like, so The Wise Fool, so what are you talking about on the podcast? No fucking idea, but it's wise and it's foolish. That's what I know. Like, that's it. So like, I'm so bad with titles. So like, how important for you as a curator are those titles? And how can we do them well? I think it's really, again, according to the artist, you know, for instance, if we look at, yes, because if you look at Uber, what does Uber tell you? Does Uber tell you anything that is a taxi service that you can book on an app, you know, like your smartphone? But eBay and Amazon, I mean, those are brands. Yeah. That's total. That's marketing and all that. That I mean, is that what the way we should be looking at our artwork? Should I be titling my artwork like that? No, not at all. The reason I gave that example is the fact that if you are drawn to titling your works from Latin phrases or from, you know, like that it has a game of its own right, or, you know, like Marcel Bruthauer's titled all his works as figs, you know? fig one fig two fig 12 it is it's part of the artistic language so i think i would not censor my language neither commodify it into a certain way of accessibility that i think is agreeable at a given time it has to be i mean like maybe you know like there might be people that are you don't maybe won't agree to this but i would really find the titling process, a very intrinsic and intimate process with my artwork. I wouldn't want someone else to change the title of my publication or of my essay, because that is still how I have thought about it and how I have framed it. But it's also, of course, about like if you're saying, yeah, but I want to be aware about the fashions around me and how the art is being consumed and I want to be really a lot in parallel with those like manners of consumption, then that is a choice. But for me, you know, like text on the artwork has a different platform. And like, for instance, I think, you know, Massimiliano Gioni's Venice was so strong in many ways, but also the fact that he worked with the cabinet and the writers of cabinet magazine and each title and the exhibition was written by an art writer that created a beautiful additional layer, a linguistic layer in the exhibition. And also there are ways that are possible and they were not direct, they were not straightforward, you know, like it is what it says on the tin. They weren't too abstract that you would actually start thinking about clouds instead of the sculpture in front of you, but they were really adding another layer. Okay, wait, you brought up abstraction. I, as I said, I do I do online portfolio reviews for Lens Culture, a photography website, and they're anonymous, which is really great because it allows me to basically be a little bit more blunt without any feeling that somebody's going to hate me for it because they don't know it's me. So 
I have this position because I see a lot of abstract work. A lot of people these days think they're creative because they make abstract work. I have this position that the more abstract the work is, the stronger slash more coherent, slash, you know, whatever, um, eloquent the statement needs to be. Like it, it, there's a there's a sort of a line. Like if if you make very literal work, like the statement could be a little less. You know, it, it's not quite as important because it's very obvious what the what the work is because you can see it. Mm -hmm. The more abstract the work gets, I feel like it, there needs to be a more cohesive and eloquent statement, title, whatever kind of text to go along with it. You know, like I go back to like Rothko and Pierre Mondrian and that kind of stuff where they made these amazing texts to explain these very abstracted things. And therefore now you go, okay, I get it, you know, because th there's that great balance of the extent to the abstraction and the extent to the concept behind it married beautifully. And I feel like a lot of abstract artists these days, or like people that are working in abstraction, mm -hmm. feel like they just they can just get away with going, oh, it's abstract. It doesn't have to have a meaning. I don't need to write all this text about it. And I'm like, and I believe it's actually the opposite of that. I think the more abstract it becomes, the more eloquent and cohe and coherent and cohesive the the text needs to be in order to engage the viewer. I will actually retract and I would go back to the work. You know, for instance, it makes me, hearing you makes me think of Cy Thombley, an incredible painter, thinker. But I mean, just seeing his works are so inspiring. And I mean, the impact they have on me is like very uplifting and it really engage, engages me and it almost like creates a meditative relationship. Same thing with, I don't know, I'm thinking of, let's say, more classical example, like Berklin's paintings, you know, like from the 17th century. They are very figurative, but also at the same time very abstract because it depicts the feminine, it depicts the, I don't know, the Isle of Sirens. And Oh, yeah, just to, be, just to be clear, wait, wait, hold on one second. Just to be clear, I can be totally wrong, and you're welcome to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, so I'm just trying to do that. <laughs> no, because I really think, I think the work is really important. Really, it's the text does almost like way as significant as the work because you really need to unpack that specific cultural context in which the work was produced, right? As abstract it is, as 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 straightforward, figurative, direct it is. So it's I think it's about I mean, maybe also maybe then you can negate me as well, but I am very much interested in the encounter between bodies and the body of the artwork and the body of the audience and the body of the building, architecture, exhibition space, the built-in environment. And I'm very much interested in the fact that there's something else happening between that encounter and an everyday encounter of waiting at a bus stop or getting on a bus or, you know. So in that sense, I'm very much interested in, you know, like that, you know, yes, of course, we can go back to the terminology of liminal space, but that the space in between where magic happens, you know, like magic as in 
something out of the ordinary happens or you come across with a perspective that adds on to your way of seeing the world or you come across with a perspective that creates tension friction with the way you have been but you know you no longer will be after that experience and i do really believe in that affect or the uh, impact of 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 things that inspire us we can have a very inspiring conversation with a friend and or a colleague that can also you know change us the way we are but it can also happen while you're reading a book or while you are at an exhibition or engaging with an artwork and that engagement is the thing and afterwards let's say going back to the artwork and the text afterwards you can read about the work or you can read the explanation or the captions and that perhaps wants you to even go deeper, you know, like uh, find different routes, different engagements. Like in also our previous conversation, we did talk about, you know, like how things trigger other things. Like you listen to a song and then and then and then you find out that it was actually a poem. And then you kind of look at the poet and afterwards you discover a literature movement. And then afterwards you discover a painter that was working with that literature movement and that painter's connection with another painter and another sculptor. And and it can become almost like a kind of a you know a horizontal mapping, a kind of a rhizomic out layout of uh, inspirational roots where there is no given and there could be multiple ways you know like my my diagram of you know like what I've been inspired by over the last you know five days ten years might be so different than yours but we might have intersection points you know we might have read the same things or looked at the same artwork at it's at the same time or at different times in space where we will be informing it to our next encounter in a way. Given that we're in a pandemic and there's of course the, the virtual meetings and the Zooms and social media and yada, yada, yada that we all have to do much like what you and I are doing right now with this virtual podcast, how do you find new artists these yeah, days? That's a great question. I, I, I think, especially these days i mean like from the beginning of this month i made a new year resolution it was actually inspired by a piece in the guardian that they suggested a cultural input per day and i was like really interested in the idea i was like okay i'll do that obstruction to myself i really like you know like putting these kind of almost let's say frames introducing frames into my work so this month i'm literally every day trying to read a book. Sometimes I manage to read a book every day. Sometimes there's, you know, like, uh, haven't managed to do that. And then, uh, or listen to a song or, or be inspired by a poem, or it could be also a podcast as well. And it's been very interesting, exactly, Wise Fool. It's been very interesting to intentionally set that openness so I now have a list of like artists that I want to check, I want to know more of, or I also have curators that I want to kind of familiarize myself with their practices, you know, as well as like publications. So at the moment, it's more about like reading, but also at the same time, looking at what is happening. Meanwhile, I'm also doing some interviews, some virtual studio visits. So it's a mix of everything. You just hit on the topic that are my last two questions. So virtual studio visits, do you like them? Do they work? 
how do they not work? Is there some way they could, if they don't work, is there some way that you think they could be done better? Like what's your input on virtual studio visits? Mm -hmm. Because I've never done them, but I feel like they're probably not as good as a real life I one. think it's like, you know, one can't place the other full stop given. I, I feel like, for instance, I'm doing this like series of virtual studio visits for a friend who is going to be curating a show in India for a gallery, not too remote gallery. And I've done some studio visits to some of their artists. But it was also, especially, it really depends as well. If it's an artist that you know, and then you are doing a virtual studio visit to catch up, is much more productive, I would say, because you are familiar with the work, or at least you have a first-hand experience of the work. But with you know artists that I don't know, it's really about first kind of starting that conversation, and the studio is it almost becomes a chat, and where you're trying to have a dialogue of some sort, where of course the artworks are brought in as reference points. And I think the following is if this, you know, like if the reference points were videos and I get the links sent and then I watch the films or if it is, you know, like sculptures or other like, you know, like two dimensional, three dimensional works, then it's more looking at their pictures beforehand and maybe like to kind of like follow up afterwards. So I don't really think studio visits are very resourceful but it's a great first point of contact having said that i was talking to some collectors and they have bought artworks through virtual studio visits but again they bought artworks from artists that they knew their practices or they have seen their works in person before i i don't really know any curators or any collectors that have you know like to based on studio on virtual studio visits done something except I do remember this Instagram collector who only collected artworks that he saw and found and purchased on Instagram but yeah that's a bit of a stretch well I mean that's the thing is like because a lot of us artists like we don't already have these connections and so it's sort of like with the issue of the need for virtual studio visits these days like how do we connect with people who we are not yeah, already yeah. connected to. I think to. definitely and I'll, especially the, uh, for that I really do feel for the younger generation of artists coming out you know at the moment there are students as well as it's, uh, the thing is and this is not about ageism it's really about opportunities and networks there are people who won't be even able to you know finish their practice based uh, master's degree in physical form because they're impacted by COVID. But the other thing is about what I was going to say is that, for instance, Ryan Gander started this uh, series last year and it was a virtual studio visits that it was a month that he would invite three or four people. It could be art critics, curators, that I was also part of it. So in July, I did studio visits to on a weekly basis, I think three artists in total, like 12, 14 artists throughout whole July. And there were artists from Australia, there were artists from, you know, I don't know, Wales. So it was a bit sporadic. But it was again, like students who don't have that, how can I say, possibility of mentorship, even at the start of their career. 
I do agree everyone does need access, but I think it was also important to give a bit of a support to young students who are very confused right now, like didn't even have a first show physically. Yeah, it's going to affect the arts in a very interesting way. Like there's going to be a lot of seclusion for a while. Like they're, you know, people aren't just able to get very far easily as they once were, but th hopefully that will work itself out in time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an optimist that way. Um, okay. Now I have a question. <laughs> it's a little catty. So bear with me. Artists. Now, don't get me wrong. Most of my friends are artists. I want to sort of start that. Start with that. However, I have run into a lot of people who um, see see us see me as competition or are caddy towards me. Like so, like specifically, it's mostly photographers. But I don't want to get into photographers. But the is there any sort of like cattiness or or sort of uh, fighting or, or, or rivalry in the curatorial I'm world? I'm sure there is, but I don't, I, you know, there are like many beautiful phrases about comparison or competition. I don't believe in uh, the positive support of comparing yourself to others. I would rather be interested in their work and you know, choose to engage with their work or not, but I wouldn't compare, let alone compete with any other curators. I mean, don't get me wrong. I say this because like I, when I was in, uh, what was I in undergrad, there was a guy, Chris, <laughs> I can't remember his last name. And then, and he and I were constantly mm -hmm. competing to do better. And that, that mm -hmm. competition actually pushed me to do better work. So like, and just the, the the term competing, I don't mean that in a negative way. Sometimes it sort of pushes you to be like, oh, okay, no, wait, I want to do better than that guy kind of thing. <laughs> like, like I can do better. And then now because they've done stepped up, I need to step up also. So like, is there a little bit of that sort of even like one-upmanship kind of stuff? Like, because like, I'm in the arts world and in the academic world. And of course, academics do that shit all the time. But how about curators? Do they do that kind of stuff? The person I would know best is myself. And what I put to myself is I want to do better in each and every project and in each and every text. I'm very much interested in that kind of like pushing yourself, not the for sake of any perfect image, but it's really about how can you get better each time? And that betterment isn't about perfectionism again or that isn't about like the ultimate ideal curator image but it's really more about you know it's more about like learning from how you do things and what you do and then also raising awareness of like what you could do well and I'm doing better each time so I'm very much interested in in that kind of like processual gradual development and evolution in my approach to curating in my approach to writing and I think that is really the case for many people, you know, like, for instance, when I look back to my presentations, you know, like 15 years ago, I wasn't as confident a public speaker as I am now. And I hope that in the future, I will even become more skilled in that. Same thing with writing, you know, like, yes, I'm still very proud of my text that I published when I was 21 in a photography art magazine. But at the same time, I, I do feel my writing has evolved from it. And I think that is what I'm interested in, you know, like how do you grow 
yourself and how to grow into your true potential. Oh yeah, I I used to be an art critic for a, a newspaper in, in the U.S. And to this day, I mean, I did I stopped doing it maybe 15 years ago. And to this day, there's this one artist that still is very angry with me. And, and I keep hearing through like social oh, wow. media and stuff how angry she still is with me about a review I did of her work. Yeah. And I'm just like, get over it. It was just one review move on you know take it as something to to help you to be better but like it's hard it, taking t both writing criticism you know because also i do portfolio reviews as well like writing criticism but also being able to take criticism is a very difficult thing of, for a lot of people myself included so it's it's a tough part of our industry you know because like a lot of other professionals in other industries they don't get criticism and they don't need to take criticism they either do their job or they don't there you go that's it <laughs> and they get their paycheck no that is true but i think it's like the way that criticism is published is very important as well for instance i have a very very close friend that i have strongly written negatively about her work 11 years ago but then what happened is like we evolved into a conversation that then led to a very important and a beautiful friendship. And we also worked together in the past and that also actually added on our strength of being friends now today. But I think it's really about, yes, criticism is important, but it's about like what you do with it. I, you know, it's also about, I do, I'm also very much interested in like thinking about leadership, thinking about ways of being in the world and there's a beautiful quote it it says leadership is about the time that you take recovery and i think it's about also success not in the sense that success is one ultimate goal that we will all reach success happens on an everyday basis there are successes it's plural there is it is not singular and also at the same time that recovery is for instance if we give the example of a tennis player you know if a tennis player is thinking about the bad back end that they did they will lose the game, you know? So it's really about rebound and it's really about recovery to kind of move on. While, you know, like uh, reflecting on the back end and the aftermath, because that will actually, you know, bring you to a better player position. And the same thing for curating and the same thing for mistakes. It's like one thing don't define you or who you are isn't defined by what you do. Who you are is bigger than that. And it's really, again, keeping that big picture in mind. Oh yeah, when I was a kid, I was a horrible tennis player for exactly the reason you just described. Like That's I would bad. constantly be like, God damn it, I shouldn't have done this. I, I should have twisted my wrist a little bit more and I would have done that and like, fuck it. Like, and I would dwell on yeah. my previous shot and then I would screw up my next shot. Like I, I'm, I, I hope I've gotten better in my old age at not dwelling on those those past mistakes. But boy, I, that was definitely a, a defining characteristic of my youth for sure. I mean, same here, you know. But that's also like that's perhaps how you learn. Yeah. Well, that mean okay. Well, that story gets to the, what I'm getting to here is like when I was young, I was an arrogant little selfish shit. Like I was the worst, and. It, in many ways, I believe that a lot of that has been to the detriment of my own career. I mean, I made my own bed and and I lied in it because I, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I have learned mm -hmm. since then that it was the wrong thing to do. And I made a lot of whatever. I'm not even going to get into all the stupid mistakes I've done. But trust me, I've done lots of stupid mistakes. 
that have damaged my potential career. But so like the, what I'm asking leading to with you is, is like, how important is mm -hmm. like the personality of the artist? So like, you know, like I know some artists that make really amazing work, but they are drug addicts, drunks, just fucking annoying, whatever, or, you know, some artists that are really pleasant to work with, but they maybe make mediocre work. So like, is there a, you know, what's the more important part? Is it, is it the enjoyment and the appreciation of being able to participate in the creation of their work, uh, you know, as a collaborative process for you? Or is it just like, I just think they make great work, even if they're fucking horrible to work with? And we, I will get back to the art and uh, and their practice. I think if the practice and the artwork is strong, I would definitely work with the artist. But also at the same time, it's really important how the artist relates to the work or what makes them really hard to work with. You know, like sometimes it's very important, like some artists are called as, oh, they're very challenging, they're very hard to work with because they are precise. But I also really appreciate that precision because sometimes they really, you know, an artist who knows what it takes to do a very strong and a very good work of art knows that it needs that precision, knows that it needs that layering, you know that it needs that attention to detail and that, you know, like if it's a performance or if it's anything else that needs rehearsal, testing ideas, experimenting, going back and forth, and that is not one thing given and if people think that is the challenge i'm happy to take that challenge so it's really about like if the artist's relationship with the artwork makes them hard to work with i'm up for that challenge but if it is a, the kind of like artist approach to being in the world and and for the sake of being less accessible, less communicable, and, and if they actually are in it for their ego and for the sake of this attestation of the strength and the amazingness of their ego, then I will really pick my choices. I mean, because I have, you know, I have definitely been bitten in the past as well and it's not only once you know like once you do it and then you move on oh, I learned my lesson no you don't learn your lesson you have to kind of keep learning the same lesson to really learn it well so I'm sure in the future there might be also like other circumstances coming and I don't say it's over but I really do now know what to really value because in a recent project I did work with an artist it was very very hard and very draining but then I also discovered that the draining was actually a process that the artist was going through in the mode of production and it was almost like it was compulsory for the work and the work and the outcome is so incredible in a way that I still do remember those days you know like with a sunken heart but also at the same time I'm so proud about the work as well you know what I mean so I would I think still work with the artist again even though maybe, you know, have different ways and means of introducing clarity. Hire an assistant to intermediary before you. <laughs> no, it's, or is it really about like, you know, knowing what might likely to spark up attention and finding ways or maybe like having tools to contain it better? Because it's also about like, you know, I'm just like going to stretch it a little bit, but it's really about, it's not about like, life isn't like something that happens to you or like hardships 
is not about like the hardships that happen to you, but it's also about your response to it. Or like if you have a relationship that is not working well, I would really question my role in it as well. Like what is it that in my reaction that actually supports their response being that negative or that destructive? Okay. Any advice that you would like to give to you know budding uh, curators out there? Yeah, I definitely feel for them. I think it, it's it's really tough times for everyone, but I think it's really tough for people who are starting or who are trying to find their feet in the arts. There are many questions, many queries. We are, you know, like rethinking about museology. We are rethinking about institutionalism and we are rethinking about the curatorial canon and curatorial practices, how to be, who to be, what is it that you really want to do or like what is the threshold for you in your practice it's really you know i think it's it's quite challenging times i do have a question okay i keep in mind i'm you know i left school 20 some years ago so like i'm a little older in my philosophy on this is it your desire career desire to be working at an institution these days or is it your desire to stay independent like because you know traditionally i felt that curators sort of started off maybe independent then they worked for a gallery and then they sort of made their way up to some institution and that was sort of the pinnacle of their career but i feel like that's not true anymore i feel like a lot of independent curators love their independence and that they actually really don't want to work for institutions so like how does your career you know trajectory look in your mind mm -hmm. The thing is, my career trajectory has been changing a lot. And I think one thing I am very sure of is that I don't see independent work too far off institutional work. Yes, of course, there might be a permanent position and there might be you know, like regular income, etc. I still feel like my work to date has been very strongly affiliated to institutions as well. Like for instance, Fig2 for me was a non-institutional institution. It had a vision, it had the kind of like roof on its top and, you know, like a, a team, a, a vision uh, to execute its program. One thing that is, I think, very important and going forward is that I think the institutions are really looking at themselves. Like yesterday, I was at an event. It was all about decolonizing the museums. And I think decolonizing the museums will also need to kind of like really reflect back on decolonizing the institution itself as well, because you can't decolonize the collections or the kind of the understanding of museology without also, you know, like addressing the structure in which it operates. For me, it's really about aspirations and it's really about like what you want to do as a curator. I'm very much interested in openness and in a way, ex exactly as you said, also like serendipity or spontaneity in programming without necessarily, you know, spontaneity doesn't have to be uh, irresponsible it still can be charged with responsibility and care and and conviction. I think these days, especially, I'm I'm really contemplating on different institutional models that could embrace that mode of functionality that is a bit more agile, that is a bit more responsive or can be responsive but also at the same time 
does have a vision in which it generates content. I do really believe in structures where, you know, everyone who works in an institution has a sort of agency and can take initiative. In a way, I'm not really interested in these like top-down management. I would like to, you know, like if, you know, if there is an institution I would like to work with that would definitely have those values and characteristics in itself, or at least open to change. You know, something that we are talking a lot about is like, oh, change is hard, nobody wants it. But also at the same time, from a quantum physics perspective or even like spiritual perspective, changes that is constant, it's happening all the time. So it's really about like finding that balance between. And one last thing I want to add is that it's really about imagination. You know, sometimes, for instance, people think that there are conditions that you're surrounded by and you live accordingly. It could be financial, economic, and sometimes people say you set the conditions, you set the bar, and then you kind of like aspire to live in those conditions, in those circumstances. And I think life is a balance of both. It's really always a negotiation. So I would really kind of like think about independency as something that you've set the bar high up. And whereas if we think institutions are more like the kind of like conditions that are set given, it's really how can these two recalibrate and be in conversation together? Well, everything is a bit of a balance. And of course, that balance is the most difficult thing to find and maintain throughout life. Absolutely. It's really that too. You know, it's about like, it's not once alignment forever aligned. It's really constantly being aware of what are we doing? How are we doing? And also being able to criticize ourselves. That's, I can really proudly say what was happening with FIG2 because the program wasn't given. It was really on the go. You know, sometimes an artist was invited 10 days before their show and sometimes, you know, six months before their show. And there was a thematic thread or multiple threads that were running through. But we would always look back and say, okay, what have we done? well and what we haven't and it wasn't like a quarterly assessment it was rather you know sporadic assessments so it's like okay you know we are in week 12 what is it that we are really proud of and i think that is what it's needed in institutions and the other thing that's been recently discussed a lot is that you know like how can we do less well you know something we also mentioned before you know like that i had that imagination or like the speculative dream of slow art movement i feel like there is some there's some you know there's food to that thought or like it, that idea has feet in the sense that it's not about like let's do lazy art but it's really more about like how can we expand the diegetic space around exhibitions around artworks so that they also you know, like are still part of conversations, you know, today when we look at, you know, like multiple literature or reading, there are certain seminal exhibitions that are, you know, referenced over and over again. So I'm interested in, you know, like, can we actually do each and every work that could be a point of reference, not for the future generations only, but also for today, you know? Yeah, I th it's funny. I was going to say that I think that topic's come up before might've been in our conversation before, but like, I feel like it's harder to do those seminal exhibitions simply because of the sheer volume of exhibitions that are, are currently not only going on, but also known about, you know, cause like 
back in the day, like in America, we had like the family of man exhibition that photography with Alfred Stieglitz. And that was a seminal thing for photography at the time. Mm -hmm. These days, it would be very difficult between the sheer volume of exhibitions all going on all over the world and the interconnectedness through social media and all the other kinds of things like this to, to have a, a, something rise to the top as being like a seminal something like that's really i find i feel like it's very much more difficult these days because of the changes in the world really no that's true that's definitely a good point but also at the same time for instance you know like based on my recent reading i've i am coming across with a lot of references to exhibitions that were made in 2014 either in north america or in asia and I feel like 2014 was an interesting year where many good exhibitions were happening in Paris and New York. And it was also a very good year for grapes, for wine. Like I highly recommend, you know, like 2014 editions of wine. I think it was also the weather was perfect. You know, all this like atmospheric conditions for something good to happen were in place. But I do think, you know, it's maybe what happens is that because of that bombardment of like content and images, we are not necessarily able to introduce healthy distance or proximity to those exhibitions. And the reason that I can look back and see, okay, in 2014, oh, there was that exhibition or, you know, like this biennial was really important is because there is that distance now, almost like, you know, six years and, and a little bit. Time and distance, they're always really great equalizers. But maybe we could perhaps like embed that into our everyday practice where... You know, it's not only that we get carried away with all that bombardment of images and content, but maybe we we kind of try to create that space in our everyday today so that we can also start finding out what is really weighing a bit more than others, what is like more of a fast flowing pace and what is there to actually kind of still resonate ideas or engagement. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel the pressure as a practicing artist to be producing more work faster now than I ever have in my career mm -hmm. because of social media and all the other things. Because like, if I'm not posting some new works on my Instagram within every week or so, then I'm not posting enough, you know, so like I've gotten to the point where I just put up Hey, this is what I did in the studio today. Like, and that's that's the best I could do. Cause like some of my pieces are taking me three and four months to create. So like I can't be done a new piece every week. And and I that I feel like there's a bit of an unrealistic expectation that's being set up for artists these days via social media to be able to produce very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really agree with you. And it's really about like how do you negotiate that demand with also your intrinsic artistic processes you know like some artists like it takes three four years for them to complete a painting i i mean like look at leonardo da vinci you know throughout his lifetime he only made 12 artworks well that we know of that we all know of exactly so it's really about also honoring your processes and being truthful to that and if you still want to be part of the conversation just you know having images as part of the processes of your work is is one way of choosing to be part of it but i don't i don't really 
think you know like artistic processes and the kind of like duration it it requires can be formatted according to the pace that is you know the way we communicate today the pace of our communication yes i know i need to relax be less anxious about it absolutely do, do, you know do, do it my own way and people will either like it or they don't no that's true i mean like there's also another thing of course like once you are in you know like once you're visible etc you're part of it but once you slow down or you know like have a moments of silence or periods of silence that is true people do move on as well so it's really about like how do you relate to that too how do you relate to i relate poorly to it is what i do I, I'm horrible at social media. Like I just like I'm looking forward to hiring somebody to do my social media stuff for me because I'm just absolutely atrocious at it. I think I'm too old, but I also think I'm a little too private, which is horribly ironic. I know with all the shit I share on the podcast, but I'm very private about about a lot of things. And, and like my art practice is one of them. Like I want. You know, it's funny. I was brought up in the era where it's like you put out, you put your best work out in the world, and that's it. And you, you're judged off of just your your finished project, not your process. Because part of me, I hate showing people my process via social media, in particular, because until it's completed and I've said, okay, that's done, mm -hmm. I could still fuck it up, <laughs> and I do. You know, I mean, because we've had this conversation about my masterful works. So the, <laughs> I do fuck up a lot of works and like, and I will get like 99.9% .9 of the way there. And like on the last stroke of whatever I do, I fuck it all up. But yet I've been showing it to everybody in process. And I'm like, nope, that would failed. Sorry. <laughs> like, it's a relative thing. You might think that you fucked up, but maybe it might actually be appealing to someone. You know what I mean? It's like, don't start me down that path. I am so tired in my career. Here we go. I'll give you like my little tirade on on the art world, my career bullshit. Okay. Every time I have an exhibition, I will put together the pieces that I think are the absolute magnificent pieces and I'll put them as primary places in the exhibition and they're really great. And then endlessly, I always have like a little empty wall that I didn't think of or an extra space and I put up some other piece that I'm just like, eh, I got to fill up this wall. I'll throw this other piece in. That's the piece that everybody fucking loves and nobody loves the ones that I think are the best pieces and put in these prominent places. Everybody loves the ones that I literally throw in at the last minute and nobody loves the ones that I love. That nobody is a temporary nobody in the sense that maybe in a year time or in five years time or 10 years time, that could be the work that actually resonates with people. So, you know, everything has its different time. Oh yeah, no. My wife, she's not very into art, and and she, I put up a piece in our home, and I was just like, I love this piece, and she's like, I hate it. And now three years later, um, she she we're getting ready to move to a new apartment, and she was like, she's like, okay, we have to have that piece in the apartment. I love that piece. I think you conditioned her. She's attuned to liking that piece. It's you know like whatever becomes part of your pool of perception becomes you know whatever becomes familiar is lovely. No, no, no. There are other ones that are in our apartment that she hates still to this day. But like, but that one she fell in love with. That's so great. that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyways. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. This was really great. Thank you very much for your time and for your attention and great questions. 
you know, I'm just listening to you and asking things off of what you say. No, that was very lovely. Thank you very much, Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>